The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went down to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Libby. Beloved, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb, would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we would uh, come to this your inscripturated word. In the name of your incarnated word, the Lord Jesus, and we would, uh, we would ask, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, uh, we would see him, uh, that we would be uh, like Edmund under the accusation of the white witch. doesn't matter the accusations of the enemy. We will keep our eyes fixed on Aslan. We will keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus. Uh, we, would, um, we would ask this morning that you would give us grace to see that wherein we fail uh, Lord Jesus, you on our behalf mightily prevail, for we ask it in your sweet and precious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, those of you who have 
uh, visited me over in the inner sanctum of my study, which is over in the, uh, in the library of the upper school on the other side of the campus here. If you've come to the inner sanctum of what uh, is known by the students over there as the Hobbit Hole, and if you come in, you'll know why it's called the Hobbit Hole, because there's all this kind of Lord of the Rings stuff, and there's some Harry Potter and a little bit of everything as you enter into the Hobbit Hole. If you come into the inner sanctum there, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, an area that houses a, a few thousand volumes. You, you'll know that I am a bibliophile. Um, folks like my wife and Wendy Twitt think that folks like Kevin Twitt and I have a problem. Uh, we don't have a problem, we have a collection. Uh, from theology to linguistics, philosophy, biblical studies, history, politics, literature, ever since I was a little boy, I, I loved books. In fact, I would submit that my bibliophilic trajectory was set when I first encountered an actual library. First grade, 1973, McLean Elementary School in Lebanon, Tennessee. Our teacher, Mrs. Berry, took the class uh, to what was for most of us the first time we'd ever been in a library. I'll never forget it, walking in to the library and just shelf after shelf, wall after wall of books. Years ago, my daughter Lydia had me take one of those little online tests by Disney to see which Disney princes I am. As if there was any question. I'm Belle, man, I'm Belle. I mean... Even when I reflect back on that first trip to the library, I get sort of bell vibes. You know, when she goes in and she sees the library in the Beast's uh, castle. Um, I checked out my first book from that library. First grade, first book. This book was brand new. It had never been checked out before. You remember back in the day when you'd check out books, they'd have the little, little card pocket in the back. You take the card out, you get stamped. This thing had never been checked out. It was brand spanking New Maurice Syndax, Where the Wild Things Are. And I checked, I was the first to check that book out, and I, uh, I carried it around everywhere I went. I'll never forget the librarian, Mrs. Greer. She had this enormous bouffant. And then when I go up to check it out, she had just sparked up a, a Virginia Slim. And I'm not kidding. She's back there in the workroom where the microfish machine is, and I'm waiting there. I dinged the bell to check my book out, and she's back there. I'll be with you in a second, honey. She, the way she would do it, it would be like always like this, way out with that Virginia Slim, which is about a foot long itself. And anyway, I carried that book around with me everywhere I went for two solid weeks, only to discover the twisted Machiavellian system of intimidation and betrayal involved in founding out that I had to give the book back. I had, I had bonded with that book. That book was was mine, and it was mercilessly wrenched from my little hands. If you come to the Hobbit Hole, uh, you'll see a rather large collection, for instance, of, of C.S. Lewis volumes, 1898-1963. There are several British first editions of uh, Lewis there. Lewis once said, you can never get a cup of tea too large or a book long enough to suit me. Any of you feel that way? Any of you bibliophiles uh, here? Uh, I might I might have the, the largest collection of volumes by or about Winston Churchill, uh, 1874, 1965, uh, in Middle Tennessee. He could be cheeky. Churchill could be cheeky. He said uh, about uh, Americans, uh, we can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted all the other possibilities. <laughs> uh, he said uh, of history, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. He could be wise. He said, socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. He could also speak words that, that I've come to live by. If you cannot read all your books, fondle them, peer into them, let them fall open where they will, 
read from the first sentence that arrests the eye, if you've ever heard him speak. Set them back on the shelves with your own hands. Arrange them on your own plan so that you at least know where they are. Let them be your friends. Let them, at any rate, be your acquaintances. One book that I have read over and again uh, is a collection of short stories by Flannery O'Connor. She lived from 1925 to 64. This collection of short stories is entitled, A Good Man is Hard to Find. In one of those short stories, uh, she gives us a character, Mr. Head. Mr. Head was uh, smug, self-superior to racial minorities, so confident of his own righteousness. Uh, In the end, when when he had come face to face with his uh, sinful uh, bigotry and experienced the grace of God, he could hardly come to terms with it, and she tells us why. She said, Mr. Head had never known before what mercy felt like because he had been too good to need any mercy. It's a very indicting statement. We're going to begin a series of sermons uh, today on a collection of short stories about the kingdom, uh, the, the parables. The, the Greek word is parabole, or in the, in the plural, uh, parabolice. It, it means uh, short stories in, in a sense. Jesus was a, a short storyteller. However, it's crucial that we get what Jesus was doing with these little stories. A rather common misconception is that Jesus told parables because he was just a master communicator with the ability to put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that everyone could get the simplicity of the gospel so that with his fingers crossed, as many people as possible would give his kingdom a chance. And to be sure, He came uh, to inaugurate the kingdom. Matthew 12, 28, the kingdom has come. Matthew 6, verse 10, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is within you. Luke 17, 21, the kingdom is what we preach. Acts 20, verse 25. But but I want you to consider what we we find out about the kingdom here in Luke chapter 10. Uh, The context is so important for understanding this parable, which for many of us is rather familiar. If you're a Bible reader, if you spent much time in Sunday school, you've heard of the Good Samaritan. It's it's almost kind of a colloquialism in in our culture today. So-and-so is being a Good Samaritan, or I'm going to go be a Good Samaritan today. But there's a context here when Jesus brings this parable. It is not just a heartwarming story about someone who has compassion. There is a, a sort of prophetic turbulence to all of the parables, and certainly to this one here. If you look here in chapter 10 of Luke, let's back up just a little bit to verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves." Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. You see that the kingdom that Jesus was preaching, the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated would bring division between a vision of Messiah that could be managed 
right? And, and, and a vision of Messiah and all of his sovereign disruptive glory. And that division was already starting in Israel. And, and I want you to consider also contextually in this chapter, the heart of Jesus. The text of Luke tells us that he was rejoicing. And we have to ask our, ourselves the question, what brings joy to the heart of Jesus? What rejoices the heart of Jesus? Look at verses 21 to 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is rejoicing over the work that his Father is doing in his sovereignty in, in salvation. And Jesus is rejoicing that some eyes have been opened that some have been given eyes to see and, and ears to hear. You see, we have to understand the purpose of the parables. They are, they are not little vignettes of chicken soup for the soul. The purpose of the parables we see all the way back in chapter 8, in Luke 8, verses 4 to 8, when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, where the sower goes out to sow seed, and, and the soil represents the kinds of hearts that the, the gospel seed uh, is distributed across, and it is the sovereignty of God that enables that soil to be receptive and for that seed of the gospel to bear fruit. And then the disciples come to him and say, tell us why you're telling these short stories. Why are you a short storyteller? Why do you tell parables? And Jesus says in chapter 8, verses 9 to 15, that he's telling these parables so that some will see and some will not. The purpose of parables is not to place the cookies on the bottom shelf so that with Jesus' fingers crossed, everyone would give the kingdom a try. Everyone to give the kingdom a chance. The purpose of parables is to reveal and to conceal. To reveal to those being given eyes to see and ears to hear and to conceal from those who think they have no need of Jesus and would have no need of Jesus in his kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus divides to this day. The cultural moment in which we find ourselves makes this undeniable. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and let you know that there are some difficult things that, that I want to share this morning. The, the crucible of persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing the world over, we can become sort of anesthetized to it. We can just sort of peace out. I would encourage, I would encourage you to go to persecution.com, to the Voice of the Martyrs, and just read the weekly stories of what our brothers and sisters, men, women, boys, and girls, are facing every single day of the week because they name the name of Jesus. And I, I think the crucible of persecution is going to be upon the church in America in ways heretofore unknown in our country. That's why we must understand the prophetic turbulence in the parables. The church of Jesus Christ, beloved, must commit herself afresh to boldness in preaching, a prophetic urgency in preaching. We, 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 we can't... We can't sort of anesthetize ourselves with, with tame sermons about a tame Savior producing tame saints unprepared for the threat of statism that is upon us. In our text, a lawyer, think Old Testament expert, expert in the Old Testament law, or so he thought, that's how he was known. Um, he assumed that he was dealing with a tame Jesus, and he thought he could tame Jesus uh, even, even more. And we see the character of his question in the desire of his heart. 
You see it there in the text, the character of the question in, in the desire of his heart. Uh, look, look at the text here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That, that was his agenda. He wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to, to trick Jesus. That, that was the desire of his heart. He wanted to see if he, could, if he could show Jesus up and sort of put him in his place, uh, kind of handle him and, and manage him. He wanted to trick Jesus. He wanted to put him to the test. We see the character of the question, the desire of his heart. We see the character of the question in the deception of his heart. He was self-deceived. He was a lot like Flannery O'Connor's Mr. Head. He really didn't think he needed mercy and grace. He thought eternal life was something he could afford. He thought it was something that he could could earn, something that he could work off, as it were. What must I do, he asked. The assumption there is whatever I have to do, I have what it takes to do it. What, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus sees the character of his question, and so he changes the question. Verses 26 to 28, he flips the script. He changes the question. Look there at the text. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This self-assured expert on Old Testament law even quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 in, in his answer, but he has no clue as to the extent to which eternal life requires absolute, perfect obedience to the law of God. Let me say that again. This expert in the law has no clue as to the extent to which eternal life hinges. Eternal life for you, eternal life for me, hinges upon absolute, perfect obedience to the law of God. But again, consider the character of the question in verse 29, and we will see the desire of his heart immediately following. But he, desiring to justify himself. See, we see the character of the question in the desire of his heart. He's about to ask a question, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? There's a certain presumption there. And who is my neighbor? Whom do I have to love? But we see the character of his question in the desire of his heart. What does he desire? To truly know how he can serve? To truly know how he can lay his life down in other-centeredness to those around him? No. What does he want? He desires to justify himself. He desires to justify himself ever since our first parents in the Garden of Eden sewed together fig leaves as the shadowy fallout of the fall darkened the garden. You and I feel that combination of smugness and uh, sort of a low-grade anxiety that comes with thinking we can justify ourselves. Uh, telling ourselves that we can justify ourselves, telling ourselves that, that we actually esteem the law of God, we actually reduce it to kind of a Kmart blue light special price so that we can tame the law and afford it and make it something manageable and think that by doing that we can, we can justify ourselves all the while thinking we can tame Jesus, pretending that we do not notice that he has fire in his eyes as we see in Revelation 19 Verse 12, we want to justify ourselves before God, doing enough good deeds to outweigh any potential bad deeds we have accrued along the way. You know, the Apostle Paul was much the same way. Look, if you will, at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, 
Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what this guy was doing. He's putting confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There was a time in Paul's life that would have been a mic drop moment for him. But now, because of the grace of God, he says, beginning in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his suffering became like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says the righteousness that I had banked upon doing enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds I now consider it as rubbish and you've heard me say before that English translation is so polite it's almost British isn't it? I count it as rubbish. Those of you here in my Sunday school class you know what the word is there. The word isn't rubbish. Anybody know the Greek word there? Does anybody remember the Greek word there? Skibalon. As somebody said, skaboodle, right? One, of my, one time we were, said, what's the word? Somebody said, skaboodle, close enough. Skaboodle, skibalon. What, is, what does Paul mean when he says, I count all of my righteousness, all of my own ability to justify myself as skibalon? You've heard me tell the story before of when my mama bought me a new set of clothing for going to vacation Bible school in summer. I got new clothes twice a year, Easter Sunday, and I got a new set of clothing for vacation Bible school every summer. Got a new set of granimals, you know, the matching shorts, the matching shirt. Put them together, new. They, they were Converse all-star knockoffs. We couldn't afford them. They were called buddies. You get them at Fred's. They were like $2 a pair. Remember buddies? That's what I wore. I wore buddies. They weren't even real Converse, but they were new. And so I go to my uncle's house. He had a farm. She tells me, I got to go in and see your uncle and your aunt about something, you stay in the car. Don't you dare get out of the car. Of course, you know what I did. She goes in the house, boom. I go straight across the road to his barn, because behind his barn was this incredible mound, this hill that just begged to be ascended, this, this hill that begged that I conquer it. And so I begin, I begin mounting this mound, and I notice as I got to the top, it gets softer as you get to the top. And as I get to the top, it gets so soft, I begin to sink. And at this point, I'm sunk down in that hill to my Waste, And then I hear the voice of the law, my mama, David Owen Filson, I told you not to get out of that car. Of course, I had um, descended into a mound of, shall we say, skibalon. <laughs> Fertilizer. He had goats and cows and chickens, and he just mounded up with his front end loader and spread it out on his, on his garden and his crops and so forth. That's what Paul's saying. My own righteousness was a pile of manure compared to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, of having his righteousness accounted to me. Of course, the voice of the law had to come and enter into the muck and mire of my sin at that moment to rescue me. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. He has perfectly obeyed the law, but what does he enter into? He enters into the, the skibalon, into the, the manure, into the crap of our lives, and, and, and he rescues us. This 
This expert in the law, though, had quite a bit of confidence. He wanted to justify himself. He, he believed what I all, often refer to as a red zone gospel. You know, Jesus has done enough by his life and his obedience, his death and his resurrection to, uh, to get us to the 20-yard line, right? He drops us off at the 20-yard line. He's done, that's grace, we think to ourselves. Jesus has gotten us to the 20-yard line and then he pats us on the back, hands us the ball and says, I've gotten you to the red zone. You're in scoring distance now, punch it in. And we, we kind of think that, that it's up to us to really punch it in and, and add enough good deeds to what he's done for us. It's kind of the red zone gospel. It's no gospel at all. That's what this expert in the law is banking on. He desires to justify himself. That's the character of the question seen in the desire of his heart, the deception of his heart. But Jesus sees the character of the question, and again, he changes the question. He changes the question with a story. When the expert in the law says, and who is my neighbor? Jesus says, well, I'll I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Jericho Road was, it was sketch, to say the least. It was about a 20-mile downhill trek from Jerusalem to Jericho, dropping about 3,200 feet uh, along the way full of crevices and twists and turns from which one could be mugged or beaten and left for dead. And this is just what happened. An ironic priest comes along. He knows what the law of God requires in terms of loving one's neighbor. But what if that man is dead? What if I get near a corpse and I'm, I'm tainted and I'm, I'm ceremonially unclean? He had too much to lose. And so he just pieces out other side of the road. A Levitical assistant to the priesthood comes along. He also knew the demand of the law to care for one's neighbor. Leviticus 19 verse 18. But both of them give this bloodied, beaten man a wide berth and they pass on the other side of the road. Nothing to see here, folks. Now, it's heart inventory time for people like me. I think it's heart inventory time for the church of Jesus Christ. Are, are we too busy when we see someone helpless and hopeless and hurting? We have too much to lose to get involved. Um, being honest about the trajectories of tragedy in this world is costly. And I want to ask a question now as I'm about to about to say some uncomfortable things, beginning with my own heart. Are we willing to consider the cost of discipleship, the cost of taking up our cross to follow our Lord Jesus? Luke 14, verses 27 to 28. The need in our Jericho Road moment today is biblical clarity, biblical conviction, and biblical compassion. Let me say that again. Biblical clarity and biblical convictions that flow from biblical clarity and biblical compassion. Because if we lack compassion, we don't really have biblical convictions. We need biblical clarity, biblical conviction, biblical compassion for our neighbors, for the watching and wondering world around us. So let me ask, are we willing to recognize that we too often reduce to uh, sort of political red state, blue state, purple state, issues that really come with a personal cost. Do, do we realize, do we realize that Satan hates God more than any person in the universe? But he can't do a thing about God. And so he targets the next best thing, the image of God in man. Satan seeks to dehumanize, right, to strip away our dignity to strip away human flourishing. He seeks to dehumanize, and he seeks also mathematically to dehuman our world. 
the sanctity of life and the protection of the unborn and the resourcing of women so that they can care for themselves and their babies, beloved, is a matter of neighbor love. We must commit ourselves to it. A biblically clear, convicted, and compassionate posture as a church when when it comes to the issue of surgical consequences for sexual confusion among young people, it's a matter of neighbor love. I think the crucible I think the crucible of persecution is coming. Many in our culture view the state as the church. Gender-affirming surgery and abortion on demand, it's two unholy sacraments because sexual expression and pleasure is the God we worship. We don't care what the cost is. Taking a biblical posture and a biblical stance against any political agenda or politician that perpetuates and facilitates such victimizing evil is a matter of neighbor love. The 21 million people in our world who right now, the 21 million people in our world right now at this very moment and any moment of any day of the week who are being involved in human trafficking. It's a matter of neighbor love. Say, what can I do? What can I do? Well, let me, let me speak here to us as men, but, but not just as men, to, to all of us, brothers and sisters as well, because we all struggle. And I'm going to be sensitive and kind of guarded in the language that I use for the sake of of our mixed audience uh, age-wise here. So track with me, please. We're gonna come up for Aaron in just a second, I promise. Begin with my own heart. See if you can relate. The 21 million people who are victims of human trafficking at any moment, at any day of the week is a matter of neighbor love. Are we gonna take the Samaritan's look and see them with compassion? The detached, depersonalized, digitized image on an illicit online site is more than pixels. It's a person created in the image of God. I'm trying to be sensitive in my language, but inappropriate, illicit material is a matter of justice. And as Tim Keller says, the Christian will have nothing to do with it. He will repent of it. There is a symbiotic relationship that exists between clicking on such sites and trafficking occurring at our border. It is a matter of supply and demand, and helping each other, beloved, pursue purity in these areas is a matter of neighbor love, loving them and loving sinners like me, sinners like us. Let me say, if you're caving into these kinds of temptations, if, if you've fallen victim yourself to the kind of things I've talked about. And there's so many other examples of what it means to be a good Samaritan and and, and neighbor love. But if you've fallen victim to these kind of things I'm talking about, please understand this. You can be forgiven, forgiven today, right now. You can fall into the arms of Jesus who will never step to the other side of the road. If you've experienced victimization in your own lives, even something because of confusion that now can't be reversed, think, what do I do? 
cling to the promise of the gospel and the resurrection of our bodies, which will be healed, made perfect, never to suffer pain or sickness or death again. That promise is held out into us, to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this future eschatological hope flows backward to give us life and purpose and hope now. The need in our Jericho Road moment, again, is biblical clarity, biblical conviction, biblical compassion for our neighbors in our city and uh, beyond the world around us for this watching and wondering world. Um, but the need in our Jericho Road moment is biblical clarity and conviction and compassion among one another here at Christ Pres. You know, Christ Presbyterian, whenever one of our flock lies broken and helpless in the middle of the road, whether it is a financial crisis or a house fire or a season of, of death and bereavement or sickness, a, a marriage in trouble, heartache, whatever. I have seen it now for 13 or 14 years that I've had the inestimable privilege of you calling me one of your pastors. I've seen it over and again. We fall all over ourselves to take care of each other. If you ever find yourself flat on your back in the middle of Jericho Road, the saints of this congregation are going to take the Samaritan's look. Verse 33, he saw him. You're going to be seen. You're going to be seen. And someone here, some group of people here, are going to fall all over themselves to pour oil into your wounds and bind up your wounds. Now, I know I've said some hard things, and, and I'm not trying to be provocative for its own sake. But again, we preachers now in this day, more than ever before, must risk being prophetic. There must be a prophetic turbulence to our preaching, just as there are to the parables. The crucible of persecution is already being faced by our brothers and sisters the world over. That said, I told you we're going to come up for air. I want to offer, I want to offer you a beautiful picture of someone in our midst, someone in our own community who saw his neighbor in need and refused to ease on over to the other side of the road. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to fix our eyes on Jesus and lead us to the table of grace. But I want to tell you the story here, uh, or set you up to, to see the story of Philip and Leslie Noble and Johnny and Annie Goodard. They're members of our church. They're in my men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, Biscuits and Bibles. And brothers, if you need a place to, collect, to connect with some men for time in the Word and just accountability and fellowship, uh, Wednesday mornings, uh, Biscuits and Bibles. Or if you're a little bougier than that, you can go to, what is it, Granola and Grace with Lee Eric on Thursday mornings or something like that. <laughs> Quiche and Kerygma, I don't know what it is. Granola and Grace, is it Granola and Grace, isn't it? On Thursday mornings or Biscuits and Bibles on Wednesday mornings, but there and there, they're in my Sunday school class. And um, I'm not gonna say any more, I'm just gonna let them Tell the story. Turn your hearts and your eyes uh, to the video here, and then I'll come back and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. So there are any number of ways that, um, that y'all serve each other, big ways, small ways. Even right now, there are people in this room who need uh, someone else in this room to take the Samaritan's look of compassion and, and reach out and find out what does it mean to love you and, and, and to serve and, and to care for you. But this is a, just a beautiful example, and it's something that you need to know the grace of the Lord that is taking place, the power of the Holy Spirit that is taking place in our church community. Now, Philip and Leslie are in New York, and he's going through the procedures right now of basically having his immunity broken down so that the kidney can uh, be transplanted and his body will receive it. Uh, when that whole process is completed in about a month or so, then Johnny uh, and Annie 
Gooder are going to be going up to New York. And um, I just want to encourage Johnny and Annie. Would y'all stand, please? Would y'all stand? This is, uh, this is neighbor love. This is brotherly love. Again, a big way, but there are all kinds of small ways that we can look with compassion uh, at, at one another. Um, experts in the law, religious leaders could not conceive that a rejected, unworthy Samaritan could do anything good. But let us not miss the reality of the one rejected, deemed unworthy, who sees us even now and has compassion on us. Isaiah 53, 4-6, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, beloved, was beaten and bloodied for us. He had perfectly obeyed the law perfectly obeyed the law, which is what your salvation required, what eternal life for you requires. Romans 5, 19, Jesus had perfectly obeyed the law, yet we read in 425 of that same letter of Romans, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, not his, ours, and he was raised for our justification. And that resurrection is the receipt from the Father that all of our debts, all of our sin debts are paid in full. Jesus, beloved, is the true and greater Samaritan who brings you into the inner sanctum. He brings you into the inn, and he seats you at his table, and he says, I will take care of you, and whatever debt you have incurred, rejoice, relax, breathe. I've, I've paid them all off. You were forgiven, and you are being healed. You see, what rejoices the heart of Jesus is seen in Hebrews chapter 2, or Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, rather. Look there, if you will. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you know anything about the cross, the barbarism, the savagery, the inhumanity, the shame of the cross, what possibly could have been joy set before him. It's there in the text, though, is it not? There was joy set before Jesus, and he went to the cross. What was that joy? Or better, who was that joy? Because if this page could become a mirror, you would see the joy that was set before him. You were the joy set before Jesus when he saw you, and he sees you now, and he looks at you with compassion. So, what is there for us to do? Show each other where mercy is found. No more pretending to be Mr. Head. <laughs> None of us have been too good to need mercy and grace. Let's help each other. Some of us even now are bruised and weary to the table of grace. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify true belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh, come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you better, you'll never come at all. 
by the Lord's grace, we can say now, by the Lord's grace, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. There are 10,000 charms, charms of grace laid out for us on this table even now. Not lucky charms, charms of grace for you and me.